0: Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics
1: and finance. Today's guest is Italian economist Loretta Napoleone. In this episode, Loretta will share with us why she sold her company in order to do a PhD in terrorism, as well as the rise of the Islamic State, the recreation of the Caliphate, and why the Chinese make better capitalists than most Western countries. This organization. In the case of terrorist kidnap, no ransom should be paid. We can't erase every trace of evil from the world, and small groups of killers have the capacity to do great harm.
0: The Islamic State has come
1: back to to, haunt Saudi Arabia. You mark my words, if they get past us, they'll come for you. The growth of Islamic State has been as astonishingly quick as it has been brutal. They've established themselves as the most recognizable terror brand in the world. Al-Qaeda is almost considered modern these days. Islamic State is forging links with other terror groups around the globe. They're willing to
0: collect under
1: their umbrella. At this moment, the greatest threats come from the Middle East and North Africa, where radical groups exploit grievances for their own gain. Their strategy is to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq and bring chaos to the future. But is that it? Arguably not. The Islamic State has a higher goal: to provoke a global religious war, fitting all society against itself. The question is, can they achieve it? And one of those groups is ISIS, which calls itself the Islamic, the Islamic State. The Islamic State.
0: You can be a Muslim woman, and you can be successful also. I would say that the feminist movement failed to produce a balance so we went from one extreme to another. nobody repairs anything anymore, so it is really an economy of cost and consumption, and this is driven by dark forces because you know at the end of the day the economy has become a sort of enemy of us because you can 't afford all of this. I mean you are a victim you know the consumer is a victim you know the consumer is a victim.
1: Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I'm so honored to have Loretta Napoleone joining me today. Hi, Loretta. Welcome to the show.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me.
1: Loretta Napoleone is the best-selling author of numerous books, including The Islamist Phoenix, Neonomics, Rogue Economics, Terror Incorporated, and Insurgent Iraq. She is an expert on terrorist financing and money laundering, and advises several governments and international organizations on counterterrorism and money laundering. As chairman of the Countering Terrorism Financing Group for the Club de Madrid, Loretta brought heads of state from around the world together to create a new strategy for combating the financing of terror networks. Loretta is a regular media commentator for CNN, Sky and the BBC and advises several banks on strategies to counter the current ongoing crisis. She lectures regularly around the world on economics, terrorism and money laundering. Loretta is also a communist and writes about terrorism, money laundering and the economies of several European financial papers. She began her career as an economist working for several banks and international organizations in Europe and the US. She has a PhD in economics and a master's of philosophy in international relations and one in terrorism. And her books are translated into 18 languages, including Chinese and Arabic. Loretta, as I'm aware, you were part of the feminist revolution of the 1970s. How did you get involved in economics?
0: Yeah, I was uh, one of the founding members uh, of um, the Italian feminist movement, when I was at university in the 1970s and um, I studied economics because I thought uh, that economics was a way to change the world. At that time, the objective was uh, to change the world, um, making it into something better than it was. In particular, the fight was um, against the Cold War. So the idea was to bring uh, Europe back into one single continent Uh, so yes this is how I decided to study economics Um, and then you know went to the States uh, I came uh, to London to the London School of Economics uh, and I ended up working um, for a Russian bank uh, here in the city of London.
1: You led a management buyout of a company and decided to sell that company for what particular reason?
0: Well, the the management buyout of the company, it was done by the partners of the company. The company was not really, it was doing well, but it was not run anymore properly. So we took uh, a section of that company, my partner and I, and then other people did the same thing. And then I decided to sell it because I wanted to go back to university, to London School of Economics, because I wanted to do a PhD in terrorism. And then I didn't. I only did the NM field. But um, yeah, it was a complete change in my profession.
1: Um, was there any particular reason why you wanted to do a PhD in terrorism?
0: Well, because uh, I have a friend. Um, and she was my ch- one of my childhood friends. And she became a leader of the Red Brigades, Which is the Italian Marxist Armed Organization. And, of course, you know, I discovered it the day she was arrested uh, in 1978, that she was a member of the Air Brigade. And for many, many years, um, until the early 90s, I was asking myself, you know, why did she become a terrorist? And uh, why didn't she tell me? I mean, you know, at that time, the recruitment took place primarily. Among friends and family, so why didn't she try to recruit me? That was really, you know, the question I wanted to answer. But of course, we did never discuss those issues because she was uh, an unrepentant uh, member of the brigades, and she would not discuss anything related to what she had done. But in 1992, they declared the end of the armed struggle, and this is when she mentioned my name uh, about one person, one of the many people they would talk to to tell their story. And because I'd been a founding member of the feminist movement, a lot of the women from the brigades knew me. So at the end, they agreed and they made a list, a very sh- a short list of people they would talk, and I was one of the people on that list.
1: Your work, the books that you've written, they tend to be somewhat on the face of it, quite different, because you talk about rogue economics and then terrorism, but they're somewhat interlinked. Yeah. How do terrorists, given the extent of their activities, happen to fund those activities? Because to carry out such an extensive network must require a lot of financing.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I did um, with my first book, which is called um, Terror Incorporated, uh, is uh, just to describe all the different ways uh, in which terrorist organizations actually fund themselves. And, uh, yes, these ways are not cheap. Um, You you need to have an initial capital, and generally this capital is put together through illegitimate activities. It's much easier to get money if you can rob a bank. You know, at that time... uh, now we're talking about the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. It was relatively easy to to walk into a bank uh, and and rob a bank. Um, the the Italian brigades, you know, they also went into supermarkets sometimes. So the idea was not really robbing, but the idea was taking possession of profits which had been generated by selling products in supermarkets, which of course you know, were produced by multinationals. So, so it was quite interesting. So the, the word that they used in Italian was esproprio, which means um, almost a nationalization of you know, funds. Uh, we take your profits away because we declare that these profits should be shared by you know, everybody else. So, it was quite interesting to, to. It's interesting now to compare the simplicity um, that this organization used with the much more sophisticated way the terrorist organization fund themselves today. So I would say that terrorism has become more and more complex. Um, it has evolved, and this is what I say in that book. It has evolved following the evolution. Of you know world economy.
1: Your new book, the latest book, "The Islamist Phoenix." You identify markets, economic markets in which terrorists have a, a good foothold in, including oil, possibly wheat, and that uh, we are consumers and we're indirectly funding terrorist activities. Uh, but obviously, the terrorists don't see it as a terrorist activity; they see it as a, yeah. a different means to creating an Islamist state. But in order to set up such an activity, they had to be sponsored initially, I'm sure. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. These people were sponsored. And uh, um, they were sponsored by the Gulf states. So Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, the most important one. And then uh, they used the money of the sponsor um, not to fight a, a war by proxy, uh, which is, you know, what the sponsor wanted them to do in uh, in Syria, but to basically strengthened themselves, uh, uh, becoming the most important group uh, uh, in the region. It's interesting that now that the, the name of this uh, guy, the Jihadi John, has come out and, uh, and also what he has done. I mean, he was clearly attracted by the Islamic State because he was the most uh, popular, most uh, known uh, group uh, in the region. And this happened in 2012. I mean, you know, he had gone to Somalia before, but, you know, apparently he couldn't get in. I mean, you know, it's, it's unclear exactly what happened. But he was very attracted to al-Shabaab. But in the end, uh, he went for the Islamic State. So that proves to me that um, the Islamic State clearly following a strategy, using those money, there was a strategy to strengthen its position and also its image so that you could attract as many viewers as possible.
1: Over time in the latter half of the previous century, Uh especially since the ending of the Cold War or even during the Cold War, the United States and Russia they had sponsored who they believed would have been ideal tribes or groups that should populate a particular region. I'm sure with Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned, sponsoring the Islamic State, could that come back to haunt them? Because I know in the past, based on history, that the United States who sponsored certain tribes, say in Afghanistan, such as Al-Qaeda. I'm not sure if they directly sponsored Al-Qaeda, but eventually spun out to be Al-Qaeda.
0: No, they did. They did. They did.
1: You mentioned in your book the caliphate, if you'd like to explain what that is, but how Saudi Arabia could be threatened by such a region.
0: Well, I mean, Saudi Arabia was bankrolling a war of proxy in Syria. And the reason why it was doing that uh, is because... uh, he wanted to get rid, uh, I mean Saudi Arabia together with you know the, the, the other Gulf states. He wanted to get rid of um, the regime of Assad. Now that is a Shia regime, of course Saudi Arabia is a Sunni country. It goes back to the revolution in Iran, this hostility between the Shia regimes and of course Saudi Arabia. So the idea w- was, yes, to use, you know, a war by proxy. And the money was given freely. I mean, so, you know, nobody was really checking. Uh, I mean, in the old days, uh, in a war by proxy, you would have had the U.S. on one side and the Soviet Union on the other side. So the behavior of the group was more controlled. While here, there were so many groups, it was impossible, really, to control what they were doing. So, yes, to answer your question, the Islamic State has come back to haunt Saudi Arabia and the rest of the, the states in the Gulf. Because, you know, really, for how much we're scared here and for how much we may think that the Islamic State wants to destroy us at the end of the day, where the real danger is in the Middle East. And we're seeing this happening in the West. I mean, the Mujahideen, which were the Arabs and Muslims that went to fight in Afghanistan during the anti-Soviet jihad, so against the Soviets in favor of the Americans and um, Saudi Arabia was one of the allies. In the end, came back home and tried to start a sort of uh, you know, revolution in their own countries. So the Gia, Algerian Gia, for example, is the result of you know, these people coming back and taking up arms when the election that brought to power an Islamic party were overruled by the army in Algeria,
1: and we see some of the at the moment. If, if you look at the maps of the Islamic State, you see pockets of Syria being taken over. And I also earlier on looked at the ancient Caliphate state. Was it Caliphate?
0: It's the Caliphate. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. So yes. I looked at a map of the Caliphate, and it spawned right across northern Africa and mm-hmm. even into Spain and Portugal and yeah. all of Saudi Arabia. So that's obviously a vision that the Islamic State has at the moment, even across to the Crimea, which is on the Russian border too.
0: Well, I mean, I don't think that what they want to do is to recreate that caliphate. Uh, I think if they do, that they will be very naive, because you know, at the end of the day, uh, it will be very, very difficult to do that. So I would say that we don't know. Exactly <laughs> what I want to do, mm-hmm. and and this is why in the book I say, well, we really need to understand what is their objective. So, do they want to recreate this caliphate, or you know, do they actually want to consolidate their position where they are? Um, which I think you know, is possible. You know, the best answer. There is no need for them to go south, for example, Baghdad. For sure, they want Baghdad um, because this is all Shia territory. So. I think that the caliphate, and I say in the book, I mean, the the caliphate is a concept, uh, it's not the caliphate of the 7th centuries or or the 10th century. It is uh, a way to formulate this Muslim political utopia, whereby for centuries uh, the the Muslim have dreamt the creation of a state, um, but have failed. Uh, So the states that they, the political uh, reality of their world has always been dictatorship or, or, you know, foreign power. So colonization or, or, of course, you know, the tribal system. So uh, the caliphate is the only political expression really that the Muslim uh, have produced. And it was an absolute splendid civilization also, um, very different from the caliphate of the Islamic State because uh, it was a very tolerant, um, you know, Jews, Christian, um, uh, uh, Muslim, everybody lived together in peace without any problem. So I doubt it that this is what ISIS wants to do. But I think that for sure they, are, they have an idea, they have established a, a state in a region that is almost as big as France. So, uh, what's the next stage? The, I mean, I think you know this is the key question, really. What is the next stage?
1: At the moment, is it running an economy? Yeah, where there's taxes, there's enterprise, there's exports, imports, etc.
0: Well, what there is at the moment is a closed economy. So we have um, a region which is controlled. And it's a region that trades with itself, basically. There is smuggling, yes, of course, but it's not official export. There is no official import either. So the smuggling is the only activity where you can bring things in and take things out. But the actual running of the state is done in a very modern way. So you want to access an Islamic court because you have a, a, a dispute with your neighbor, you go to the Islamic court and you pay a fee. So the state will collect this fee. and At the same time, you know, the state will pay whoever sits there and uh, administer justice. So from that point of view, I would say that the economy is a close economy, but it's also an economy very close to our economy, to the way our economy is run. It's not a, the economy of the Taliban where you know money came from uh, uh, Pakistan and these people produced nothing. They were not interested at all in producing anything and the population was starving. So it's not like that.
1: Is there a currency or a banking system? I know we have Islamic finance, but I don't want to associate one with the other. But I'm sure they have that association in terms of Sharia law.
0: Well, no, I don't think that there is any relationship to any of the Islamic banks. I think they have their own system. But I also think this is a sustenance economy. I'm pretty sure that it's all cash. I don't think that people can afford actually to save money. So I would say no. The currency, apparently, you know, they said, you know, we are using gold. We have our own gold coins, but I doubt it. I think, you know, they're using dollars for, you know, the big things. I mean, if you want to buy a Kalashnikov, uh, you're not going to pay with gold coins. You're going to pay with, with, with dollars uh, because, you know, that's the international market. But, you know, of course, inside the caliphate, it is likely that they still recognize the local currency. Again, I would say the most of the economy is so basic that there is a lot of barter also taking place.
1: It's ironic given that the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency and with their quantitative easing and the printing of a lot of dollars, they can effectively borrow the amount of dollars that's not only within the United States, but what's actually printed and available throughout the whole world, whereas in another country, they can only borrow what they have. So by printing all these dollars and making them widely available, Mm -hmm. there just seems to be a lot of terrorist activity going on over the last, say, decade. Coinciding with this monetary policy that's going on, do you find a correlation between the two, and is this allowing such activity to emerge and continue?
0: Well, I'm pretty sure that there is uh, still a link uh, between you know the U.S. dollar and uh, so b- basically the, it works in this way that you know the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world, right? So the U.S. can borrow against the stock of dollar in circulation all over the world. Now, but that also means that the U.S. um, Federal Reserve prints uh, enough dollars not only for the demand inside, you know, the U.S., but also the demand coming from outside. So the illegal arms market is all run in dollars. Uh, So this is a market that grows and therefore, you know, needs uh, to be fed by an increasing supply of dollars. Now, of course, if the US start printing like crazy, part of this money will end up also in the illegal economy, such as, for example, you know, the art market. And if the Islamic State is using these dollars, then yes, of course, you know, they, they will benefit indirectly from, you know, the printing of money in, uh, in the United States. This is the kind of interdependency that there is now the the u s introduced the Patriot Act after nine eleven which controls uh, uh, every single transaction in u s dollars everywhere in the world, so technically speaking uh, uh, it should be very difficult. Uh, to move uh, funds from uh, one bank to another bank, um, from one country to another country, uh, without the monetary authorities knowing what is happening. But we know that the bulk of the money which are used by the illegal economy outside the United States, so, you know, the dollars they use, they leave the country illegally in suitcases, in boxes, and all in cash. So there are not going to be dollar transactions of this type. Now I don't think that people are smuggling dollars into the Islamic State, but I do think that through certain kind of trades, for example, the the arm trade, for sure, yes, you know, some of these dollars, you know, actually get inside the Islamic State, I mean the Caliphate.
1: With all the economic news that's going on around the world over the last five to seven years, there seems to be politicians or the economy, the global economy, is living on an edge. You have what's going on in Europe with Greece on the brink of maybe possibly leaving the euro, if that's ever going to happen. But being punished with the bailout, likewise, in Ireland and so on. But then you have a lot of money being put into the likes of Ukraine and some of the other organizations uh, in the Middle East. And it seems an injustice for some countries to see that actually going on where some countries have to make huge repayments. Is that a political motive or more of an economic motive? Because I know you mentioned in one of your books about the Marshall Plan and how it was more politically motivated, or even post-World War II to rebuild Europe, it was more politically motivated in order to expand consumerism. Is that the political motive of, say, Europe and maybe the US to rebuild Afghanistan or some parts of the Middle East, or uh, enlarge the Euro area as far as the Ukraine, in order to fund such multinational corporations and consumerism?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think you know that they're trying. They're doing this to rebuild this country. Maybe you know this is what they tell us uh, that they are doing this to rebuild this country, but in reality. What they're doing is um, they're penetrating those markets. So they want their multinationals to basically, yes, you know, um, sell those products. Uh, and the money that they are given as uh, uh, sort of uh, loans end up being spent within you know, this group of multinationals. I don't think you know there is really any will to improve uh, the economy of this country the way that the Marshall Plan actually worked. Uh, there was an exceptional circumstances. Now, of course, the Marshall Plan in the end also enriched uh, the American companies. Uh, but the idea uh, was uh, also to rebuild Europe after you know, World War II. And by doing that, you know, making... Uh, these uh, American companies become rich, but now it seems to me that they don't even care about rebuilding. Uh, I mean, sufficient uh, just to go there, penetrate those markets, uh, and, and this is why it doesn't work. I mean, I mean, the Marshall Plan was good also because, to a certain extent, it distribute the money all over. It's, it's almost you know spread the money right, like you know, on, on a piece of bread. Um, so everybody, one way or another, benefited from that. But because we were starting from zero, now you could say that in certain parts of the Ukraine, uh, the situation is similar. Or in Afghanistan, although I think, you know, Afghanistan is not, has been completely forgotten or abandoned. The same story is Iraq. But no, I think, you know, the Ukraine possibly is the only place where still they are thinking that that could work very well. So we have a small group of people that controls, as we all know now, the the bulk of the wealth of the world. And this is why things are not working, because, of course, the higher the concentration of wealth, uh, the less efficient the economy is.
1: And how naive are we as consumers then? Because, again, in your book, Rogue Economics, you said the world is being reshaped by dark economic forces based on a fantasy world of consumerism. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, because consumerism is now the driving force. Uh, if you think about, you know, people, um, think about, you know, computers, Apple. I mean, the only reason why Apple is making all this money is, and is considered to be the largest ever company in the United States is because he, each year it produces a new product. I mean, you know, why do we need an iPhone 6 when an iPhone 4 mm-hmm. works perfectly well? You see, these are the key issues, is everything that is electronic, which is what drives a big chunk of the economy, requires constant improvement. If you don't move to the higher level of technology, you end up not being able to access this technology. So this is the endless consumerism. Well, before consumption was finalized to comfort, So you bought um, a vacuum cleaner and you kept a vacuum cleaner until it broke. Actually, initially, you know, you would even have somebody repairing it. Nobody repairs anything anymore. So it is really an economy of cost and consumption. And this is driven by dark forces because, you know, at the end of the day, the economy has become a sort of enemy of us because you can't afford all of this. I mean, you, you are a victim. You know, the consumer is a victim. You can't possibly keep that iPhone 4. You've got to go on iPhone 6. Uh, maybe you can keep it for a couple of years, but eventually you won't be able to text, you won't be able to do iMessaging, you won't be able to do what <laughs> what you need to do, or other people will do something better. So at the end of the day, you will have to get that phone also.
1: With the breakup of the Iron Curtain and the falling of the Berlin Wall, we have a lot more democratic countries today than we've ever had in the past. You've mentioned also that more democracy available throughout the world has actually created more slavery. Mm -hmm. Is that something that should be accepted in modern day society?
0: Yeah, slavery uh, has definitely increased. I mean, I wrote a book in 2006, and today, I would say that you know, slavery is even bigger than it was uh, in 2006. I mean, you know, if you look at those people crossing uh, from uh, uh, North Africa, from Libya, uh, going to Italy, I mean, a lot of those people have been enslaved for a long time in Libya. Um, then, you know, they get to Italy, and they end up, you know, being enslaved in Italy, maybe not in the same way as proper slavery it is, but... In a very, very close way. They live in, in dreadful conditions. They're paid next to nothing. But, um, they're trapped wherever they are. Um, and if they don't do that kind of work, they won't eat. Uh, so they will starve. So I would say that this economy, this rogue economics, is how I call it, is, um, is very much an economy that is driven. On one end, by consumption, this endless, endless consumption. And to feed this monster of endless consumption, uh, you have to produce uh, a cheaper, cheaper level. So you use anything you can. I mean, Steve Jobs created Apple in the sweatshops of China. He didn't create Apple in the factories uh, of California. Because there are no factories in California. So I think we have to understand that. And then, of course, the sex trade uh, with the fall of the Berlin Wall you know, absolutely boomed. Because you know, these women, as I say in the book, had no other alternative but to prostitute themselves to feed their family. Because of the collapse of the communist economy. Uh, and this was done uh, by us, the West, without you know paying any attention. Without... You know, even thinking about those people, which is absolutely terrible, I think.
1: Is this what you mean by the race to the bottom?
0: You know, yeah, yeah, the race to, to the bottom, it is that. It is the fact that at the end of the day, people coming from these parts of the world will be willing to work for less. And that's what's happening in the United Kingdom, and particularly in London. I mean, we had so many people coming from Europe uh, because of the financial crisis that... Uh, It's difficult for the British to get jobs, but also wages have gone down uh, because these people are willing to work for less. So, yeah, that's the race to the bottom. But also because demand is shrinking, and in part is shrinking because of technology. So you need less and less people to produce something now, but you need people that are willing to work for less and less, so that profits get bigger and bigger. The idea that the profits can be so high and salaries so low, um, it is ethically absolutely repulsive. But there are no unions anymore. There is no workers' movement either. If you say, no, I want to be paid more in the United Kingdom, then the people that produce, whatever they're producing, may actually go to Serbia. So there's also you know, the offshoring uh, is taking place. So it is extremely complex uh, what is happening in terms of negativity of the economy, in terms of the dark forces of this economy. Yeah.
1: I've had a previous guest, episode 14, Dr. Shoshana Grosbard. She also in the 1970s was part of the feminist revolution too. Obviously I can't speak for Shoshana, but maybe you could elaborate on how you feel. Given you were part of that movement in the 70s, How do you feel about what's going on right now with what we've just spoken about, and also the emergence of the Islamic State, where women are actually treated quite differently to those in the Western economy? Is there much we can do?
0: No, there is nothing we can do in the Islamic State. I mean, but of course there is something we can do to stop people going there. Women. I mean, now that it's the story of these three teenagers from England they went, uh, and now they're in Syria and we don't know what's happened to them. I mean, it, it, it's really worrisome, the idea that these uh, teenagers went there by themselves, leaving you know, their family behind, uh, to have a life uh, of second-rate citizens, or second-rate human beings, because, I mean, that's the condition of women in this part of the world. I mean, the Islamic State may attract women with the idea of the so-called new nation, come be the mothers of our new warriors, uh, be part of um, the Muslim political utopia. But at the end of the day, women are second-rate citizens, so they can't go out by themselves, you know, they can't work, they have to follow a male relative when they walk in the street, they have to be totally covered up. So, I don't know how it's possible that a 15-year-old kid brought up in the West can actually think that this is a better life. But clearly, we have failed in the West to show these girls that you can be a Muslim woman and you can be successful also. I mean, the image that we project of the Western female is very aggressive, Because, you know, women are very aggressive. So I would say that's self-criticism from my point of view, that the feminist movement failed to produce a balance. So we went from one extreme to another. Uh, We also did not understand that men were not ready for that kind of message. So we had to educate them. Uh, We didn't. And this is why uh, I think... uh, we have this kind of phenomenon, which completely, completely incomprehensible to me. Three teenagers, you know, want you to be part of the Islamic State. It just doesn't make sense.
1: Should Americans be worried about their own economy? Because they seem to be bankrolling a lot of these activities by their foreign policy that they're undertaking. And where's China and all of this? Are China doing the right thing in terms of remaining outside of interference?
0: Yeah, yeah, China is doing the right thing. I think you know, China, luckily, is far away and is keeping its distances. Uh, this is a European problem because, you know, they're here on, on our doorstep. I think this is a European problem also because of colonization. China never colonized uh, anybody. So from that point of view, the China, well, of course, they have their problem with the inside China. But there is a A very strong component of colonization in this antagonism, in this tension uh, between what is happening in the Middle East and and what's happening here. So I would say that, yes, China is doing the right thing.
1: Even though they're a communist country, like the way maybe the Red Brigade Marxists tried to socialize some of the areas in Italy. They're a communist country, but you claim that they're actually better capitalists than we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite evident, actually, isn't it? Although, is it just a coincidence that they're emerging economies, so they're going to be rapidly growing anyway? Or is it that their whole policy, domestic policy and economic policy, is something that we can all learn from?
0: I think we should learn from, uh, because it's a a different model. I would say we should learn from everybody and from everything. We shouldn't close uh, ourselves. For the time being, I would say that China is still doing relatively well. The rate of growth is coming down, it is coming down because of course you know we are in a world recession, even if nobody wants to admit it. <laughs> so it is coming down as a consequence of what is happening in the rest of the world. yeah, But I think the Chinese model, may be also a good model for the future, because it's a model that works in a large country with a very high number of people. It's also a model that works very well in developing countries. So Africa could benefit, for example. We could take the model, apply, and then have good results. Well, yes, and had good results with the application of our model, the classic capitalist model, because of course it was applied through colonization. So I would say that, yes, Africa is probably the, the one that benefits the most.
1: Can I ask you some random questions then, if that's okay? Sure. Who would your influencers be in terms of economists, living or dead?
0: Well, I would say all the classic, uh, so Smith, Ricardo and Marx, uh, uh, John Stuart Mill, all of them had a very big impact uh, upon me. In modern times, no. I wouldn't say that... I mean, yes. I mean, Keynes uh, did influence me, but I don't see economics has changed a lot. It's become more mathematics. Uh, so, no, I wouldn't say that there is anybody today that I really think uh, is influencing me at all. No.
1: Your field of research and work is quite unique. Um, yes. So, I, I try to draw some parallels with other people's work, or try to have a second guess. Who would your influencers be? So. Hence the question.
0: No, I know. It's strange that the only book on the economics of terrorism is my book. Um, Strange, yeah.
1: You're passing the baton and hopefully people will use that as a, a model to develop and do more research on.
0: Yeah, yeah. We do need more research on that, yeah.
1: Is there any particular economic theory that you appreciate or is there any criticism in economics? You mentioned mathematics. Is that criticism?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's too much maths, uh, so you know everything is reduced to mathematical models. Uh, they want to predict everything with the numbers, but you know economics is a social science, so you can't predict uh, people's behavior. You can't predict uh, if somebody commits uh, a political uh, crime, like you know the death of Indira Gandhi. You know uh, that day, you know the market completely crashed. So I think the fundamentals of economics, uh, yes, maybe you can predict them. Um, I mean, you can't predict with, with an econometric model, but I really doubted that you can do that with uh, events that have a tremendous impact on the economy, for example, nine eleven. How you predict that with uh, an econometric model? No way. I think we need a new theory, but there is no new theory. Why there is no new theory? I think because people are not observing behavior anymore. When I mean, all the classic economists, they were actually sociologists. They were people that studied human behavior, societal behavior. Well, Here, all we do is you know, look at the indicators and we look at the market, look at the stock market. So that's why we have no theory yet. But you know, it will have to come.
1: You've done a lot of work, as we are aware of now, with a lot of your books. Do you have any personal habits that you'd like to share with us, and any advice for some people who are doing research or want to write a book or essentially follow in your footsteps?
0: You mean a hobby you said it uh?
1: can be a hobby or what you do to actually what what's the secret to writing some of those books, whether it's a hobby or whether it's the hours that you put in or
0: yeah, I mean, I put a lot of hours. Uh, I generally go and write a book in the U.S., uh, in Montana, away from everybody because uh, I find distraction really quite difficult. When you write a book, you, it's like diving into something and you've got to be down until you finish. So any form of distraction uh, actually breaks the flow of thinking. So, yes, I would say the advice is if you want to write a book, You start now and you stop when you finish. You don't stop in the middle. You don't do many things. All you do is work, work, work. Yeah.
1: And do you have a favorite internet resource or any particular resource that helps you with this writing?
0: No. You don't use
1: Evernote or Scrivener?
0: What? I don't know. What, what, what are these things? Huh? I don't even know.
1: A lot of writers, authors would use it as a means of gathering information and, and start writing their material. They tend to give it a very good rating in terms of helping them with the flow of work.
0: And it's called Scrivener.
1: Scrivener, yes.
0: Wow. No, no, I, I write the old-fashioned way. <laughs> Interesting, huh? Scrivener. huh? You find it? Well, it's a writing software. Yeah. Mm.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. And Evernote is apparently a good one as well for gathering notes and putting it in an organized fashion so you can reach out for it. Oh,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. I can see that. No, I actually do the old-fashioned thing. So I print some stuff. I put them in files. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And do you have any recommended books? I'm going to put all yours on my show notes page online so people can access com forward slash Beretta. if you have any other books that you would like to recommend
0: I would recommend Adam Smith because you know people have completely misunderstood Adam Smith so I would say yes
1: the wealth of nations, and the yeah. moral sentiments.
0: Yeah. yeah, or even, you know, small stuff that you wrote. Because he is the most modern of them all. I mean, you know, Marx, is, we have gone beyond that type of capitalism. But Adam Smith, I think he has really a vision that still works very well.
1: Do you have any takeaway that you would like to leave with our listeners before we finish up with the interview?
0: Well, I would say that the key is always, you know, to search for the truth. So, in this era of social media and technology, where everybody has become uh, like journalist, a uh, writer, you know, citizen journalist and a writer, which is good, I think, you know, because people participate. Um, the, it's important to, to still to listen to the experts because otherwise you get uh, the wrong picture
1: true and hence I'd like to bring on people like yourself Loretta to get those expert opinions Loretta thank you so much for joining me on Economic Rockstar I had a blast and I truly learned a lot from you and I'm sure that we could talk a lot more but I know you're very very busy share with our listeners where they could find you
0: well they can find me on uh, my web which is uh, loretta
1: you can find all the links to Loretta on EconomicRockstar.com. Loretta that's L-O-R-E-T-T-A Loretta, you are an economic rock star.
0: Thank you, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for being so generous with your time.
0: The idea that profits can be so high and salaries so low, um, it is ethically absolutely repulsive.